Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written, well, not just cookbooks, but 40 books in all, including the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook and From Freezer to Instant Pot, the cookbook. And Bruce has written a couple knitting books. I've written a memoir. It's just a whole publishing thing going on over here. But this episode of our Food and Cooking podcast is not about knitting or memoirization it's instead about food in the news it's about cooking tips it's about starting a food business in these trying times and what's making us happy in food this week so let's get started this week we're talking about food in the news and there are some really fun and interesting and weird stories that we've read online about food and i want to start with one the foodandwine.com had up, and they reported 20 people from seven parts of France were arrested Monday. And can you guess why people in France would be arrested? Because for they're selling bad cheese, for uh, <laughs> um, not using deodorant. Well, for... then they arrest the whole country. Oh. Um, Note, for producing and selling hundreds of thousands of bottles of fake Bordeaux. Well, now listen, I have just have to say that this is not the first time this has happened. This happens quite frequently, and fake wines show up all the time, especially high-end, even high-end, allegedly high-end, California fakes show up on the market. It's not like they're selling fake wine. It's real wine. Right. It's just either bottom-of-the-range wine from Bordeaux or even wines from areas quite a long way from Bordeaux, but they're labeling them as high-end chateau wines. Right. And some of the chateaus are made up in some of the fake wines, and some of the chateaus are actually reproductions of actual uh, famous and long-standing vineyards. It's an it's an ongoing problem, and I'm, well, let's just talk about it for a second about how to solve this problem because you know I, you go to a wine store and, and you don't want to think, oh my gosh, I'm spending all this money, and what if it's a fake? Always, always go to a reputable mm. wine store with reputable wine buyers. I go to a large store, we're not going to name it, but it's over in West Hartford, Connecticut. The buyers are walking the wine floor, and you can actually talk to the very people who buy the wine that go onto the shelves. And they have tastings all the time. And in fact, it's always a good idea in big stores like where we go, you can even ask, hey, can I taste this wine? Because no, they so might crazy. have a bottle ready for opening and tasting, and they're really open to it. So where you go is really important. This wine store, it's a giant wine store. It's a chain, and there's a lot of them, but they have signs on all all kinds of bottles from low-end bottles to high-end bottles that say taste this wine mm -hmm. meaning they will open this wine for you to taste go after lunch <laughs> Well, I don't know. Go well, before this, lunch. Well, the place we go, there's go a fabulous Korean fried chicken place in the same uh, strip mall. So we go and have <laughs> just fried go chicken for and lunch. then taste I mean, I wine. think wine is a fine lunch. We're talking about France. What do you Gerard Depardieu? Yeah, well. Anyway. Gets up and drinks four bottles before breakfast. It's it's really been a problem with French wines and the fakery that can go on with French wines. But let's just say it's happened with Italian wines. It's happened with German wines. It's happened with U.S. wines. The fakery is something that does 
go on in this world and you have to be careful and you know i mean listen there are also lots of wines that are bottom of the barrel wines bought by small producers they slap a very fancy label on them even in u.s wines and then they sell them for top dollar and what they're buying is just uh, the remnants and pieces of all different winemakers you know they go to ravenswood or wherever i mean i don't i don't know that ravenswood actually is part of this but they go someplace like that they buy up some of their wine and they mix it with a lot of other wines slap a fancy label on it just be careful Ooh, it's a proprietary blend i mm. also want to add that what we're talking about here is really expensive wine too so if you're right. the person who drinks ten dollar or twenty dollar wine you're probably not going to be affected by this Correct. as much as someone who's going out and spending 75 150 300 on a bottle Correct. of wine. Correct. those are the people that are have to look out in general the, the higher price wines are the ones that are subjected to the fraud scams because of course people can make so much bigger profit margins of them but as well the french government has declared that plant-based meat products can't be called meat or steak or bacon or sausage. <laughs> oh, uh, they, those wacky French. They well, really got it. In France, there is a fake bacon called Facon, and they are claiming, this company is claiming, that all the government is doing is driving them and other plant-based product makers to move out of the country because this rule is only for these products that are made in France. You right. can still import them That's right. to France, which does actually seem to be unfair to your own country's producers of plant-based meat products. I mean, plant-based meat products are the wave, and they have been mm -hmm. the wave for a while, and they will continue. Believe me, the amount of money that is being poured into plant-based meat products it's astounding, and they will continue to be the wave for a while. And that France is trying to somehow get ahead of this so that there's no fake marketing. I suppose it's admirable, but it seems a little misplaced. And strangely, the one word that escaped this decree is burger. So if you, if the French are making the burger impossible, um, then they can actually go ahead and make a burger impossible. I guess so. I guess because the word burger is such, well, I don't know. It's not, it's not a cut. Like bacon is a cut, right? Well, I mean, sausage isn't a cut. Well, that's true. It's weird. I think that there's some meat lobbyist in no, France yeah, who is just like has very deep pockets. Undoubtedly. And this is, uh, a, again, a larger question because fake meat is coming. It's coming on stronger and stronger. And, of course, fake meat looks like real meat. I mean, I can't hardly tell the difference in a package. If you were to show me two different packages of a plant-based ground meat product and actual ground beef. No, they I, look the same. I ground have beef. a really hard time telling the difference. Impossible meat looks just like ground beef. It's really kind of crazy. Right. Um, if you haven't ever tried impossible meat, I can't, I can't tell you enough that you should try it. It's amazing stuff. And I do like impossible burgers, but still and nonetheless, it is a, well, I don't know, a coming controversy, maybe even here in the United States. Okay, let's talk about Nathan's hot dogs. Every year, July 4th, they have their hot dog eating contest. We have tortured, we'll say, I have tortured friends making them watch oh this. My God. We rented a house in upstate Vermont once, and on the 4th of July, we watched Nathan's hot dog eating contest. And uh, the husband of the couple friend who were with us, he... Uh, he, I think it's still to this day. <laughs> Tortured him. Oh it scarred him. It was like a nightmare it situation for him. him. Well, Joey Chestnut is one of the world champion of 
food eating contest winners. Um, he won 15 of the past 16 years of Nathan's. Crazy. And this 4th of July, he didn't even come close to his record last year of 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Instead, he only choked down 63 hot dogs in 10 minutes, Gross. but it was enough to win. Imagine, Gross. 63 hot didn't dogs and their a, buns. Didn't you go through a whole phase of reading about competitive eaters oh, yeah. and reading the bios I read Joey memoirs. Chestnut's memoir. And yeah. you read all these memoirs, and you also read about competitive eating. He's a skinny guy, actually. Well, yeah, and I don't think that a lot of people know that after you eat that much food that quickly, you have what in the industry is literally called <laughs> dumping syndrome. Which you can figure it out. It goes comes out really fast it dumps out Re- like within not so long after doing it your body can't handle it mm-hmm. i mean think about that 76 hot dogs and 76 buns in 10 that's minutes that's disgusting it must just destroy your duodenum and all those valves down there i mean really honestly it must just dist- we're now suddenly talking anatomy this is really nice <laughs> on a food con- <laughs> podcast that we're talking anatomy but it must destroy your duodenum and that kind of thing okay uh, in a previous episode we talked about hard seltzers but we have since discovered that there are far weirder hard seltzers than we could ever even have imagined yeah we thought that the pancake and maple syrup bacon one was really weird right but we found that this martin house brewing company in texas is Uh launching its awesome sauce hard seltzer line the base of this hard seltzer get this maybe they were at the hot dog eating contest because it's made with leftover water from boiling 52 pounds of hot dogs they add the alcohol they add the carbonation they add the sugar and you're eating hot dog water seltzer oh that is just (laughs) so disgusting i my home state of texas what in the heck is going on down there martin house brewing company with your hot dog seltzer i just don't think i'm going to try it in any way they've done this before this company they have made beer out of salsa verde Mm. and even out of mustard pickle Mm. gag me but uh i i i can't like well, I have to tell you, I'm a little bit attracted to it. I kind of <laughs> want to have a party in which I have hot dog, hard seltzer out on the deck and just see what people say. I mean, who would be brave enough to actually drink this stuff? Well, it's funny. This morning, Mark was showing me a meme he saw on social media about Oscar excuse Mayer. Me, excuse me. That's a meme. A meme. Mark showed me a meme about Oscar Mayer flavored hard seltzers. <laughs> and after reading about the Martin House... <laughs> Hot dog water. Gross. I'm not sure that was a may-may after all. Well, it was a may-may, <laughs> but that's just so disgusting. And for our last bit of food news that is in Global Food Problems, here's one that I bet you could never have guessed. That is <laughs> that Europeans are eating too many frog legs. <laughs> and the frog leg industry is under extreme duress because too many frog legs are being eaten. Well, it was reported by The Guardian that um, these two nonprofit environmental groups, one in Germany and one in France, claimed that more than 40 thousand tons of frog legs were imported wow. into the EU in the last decade, which came to somewhere between 800 million and 2 
billion frogs. That's unbelievable. And they are worried about the frog population. Well, yeah. Well, we should be worried about the frog population for lots and lots of reasons. But I would have told you eating of said frogs was not one of the reasons we should be worried about it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I think about the time that I had that garlic soup. I had garlic soup with frog legs at... Uh, Jean-Georges in New York City once. And those frog legs were tiny. They were. They were these little, tiny, tiny That would have taken legs. about six billion frogs to make that. Yeah. So, I, you know, I know also, listen, hey, I grew up in Texas. I grew up eating bullfrog legs. It's true. We caught bullfrogs. We fried the legs, you know, battered them, fried them. I grew up eating this stuff. And as a kid, I will tell you, it didn't bother me in the slightest to eat them. I haven't had bullfrog legs since maybe I was 12 or 13. I don't even know. But it does seem to me strange that when you have an amphibious population that is under so much pollution stress, that we would be just eating it down at the same time. We really, we are really making a mess. Well, of it things. seems kind of weird though and wasteful that most people, especially in Europe, only eat the legs because right. throughout Asia. Right. Once they dispatch a frog, they eat it all. They right. chop the whole thing right. up and right. throw it in the wok. Bruce so, and I went to a dry uh, dry pot restaurant in New York once, a wonderful restaurant. that Explain a, what dry pot is. Well, it's basically a dry stir fry. It does, In other words, a hot pot is all wet and soupy, and this is very dry with tons and tons and tons of aromatics in the wok. And this restaurant allows you to pick what you want in your wok. So it starts with basic things and then there's this giant menu in this restaurant that includes everything from rooster testicles to lotus roots to coxcombs to just over tons of stuff and normal stuff quote unquote to yes chicken breasts chicken thighs and chicken breasts and strip steak and stuff like that which is all cut up and put in the wok with all these aromatics okay one of the things on the menu was frog so we put frog in our dry pot and I think we were expecting the legs we were but we got everything we got a face (laughs) we got a face looking back at us out of the wok so that was just a little bit uh, even too far for two very very committed cookbook writers and food eaters. <laughs> Before we get to our next segment, which won't be about eating face, may I ask you if you would please subscribe to this podcast, rate it. If you could just even put a, re- a comment such as great podcast or lots of fun in the Apple analytics or in the Audible analytics, that would be fabulous. We are, as we've said a million times, unsupported. So we are doing this for the pleasure of doing it. We like recording podcasts, but we can always use a little help when it comes to the unforgiving analytics of the internet. So on to segment two. Our one minute cooking tip this week, Roast a chicken in a bunt pan. This is so brilliant. And I have to tell you, this is one of the hacks in our cookbook, The Kitchen Shortcut Bible, a book that I personally love. It never got the giant play that I think that book deserved, but we had a whole chapter on things to do with bunt pans, right? And And the best thing is roast a chicken. If you stand the chicken up with the legs down, right, and the the center cone of the bunt pan goes up into the middle of the chicken, so the chicken is standing up, the fat drips off, it 
cooks all the way around so you don't have the bottom that's not crispy. You don't have to turn it. Right. And it cooks even from the inside, so it cooks faster because the heat of the cone of the bun pan cooks it from the inside. It is a perfect way to cook a chicken. It is. And in the Kitchen Shortcut Pie we even tell you how to roast potatoes in all that dripping mm. chicken fat inside the pan. Mm. Or the worst of all, or the best of all, depending how you look at it, how to put dressing, in cornbread dressing inside that pan and let the chicken just drip into it. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Um, we also have a have working a good... relationship with cardiologists <laughs> across the United States where we get kickbacks. That's how we're supported. <laughs> okay. He's kidding. Uh, kind of. Up next, Bruce's interview with Alan Thayer and Rick Marchesaw, who have opened a food business, Spice 320. And Bruce is going to talk to them all about what it takes to open your dream food business in this very challenging environment. Today, I'm talking with Alan Thayer and Rich Marchesal of Spice 320. They are the creative couple that opened this amazing spice store and prepared foods gift shop in our small town in New England. And I appreciate you guys spending some time talking with me this morning. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you for having us. So let me start with what inspired you both to open a spice shop in the first place? Um, and what kind of spices and blends do you carry? Both Rick and I have been looking to do a small food business for the last eight to 10 years anyway. And um, we were always trying to find that niche that we wanted to do. I had been cooking professionally for 35 years now in various formats, French restaurants, nonprofits. I had developed a culinary arts training program for folks with disabilities at a nonprofit in New Haven. So I've been all over the map in terms of cooking and venues and whatnot. So on our most recent vacation pre-pandemic, we did that trip to Marrakesh and I was just astounded and just floored by the wonderful aromas and the visual of landscape of all those spices around us. And I thought, well, that would be something interesting to think about. Yeah. Bring that home to New England. And, and that's what I did. I did a lot of researching on spices, sourcing spices, and then um, developing blends on my own. Was there any hesitation of starting this food business in a rural town in New England? So we have been up here for 13 years and knew the area quite well. And we're situated on a major thoroughfare that goes literally from Bridgeport all the way up to the Berkshires. So it does have good traffic here. So we thought, you know, that would work. Oh, the property came up three years ago yes. for sale. Yes. Right down the street where we live. Right. And I said, Alan, it's time. And uh, we acted fast. And right. here we are. <laughs> we purchased the property back in December 2018. You need to know this about Rick. He's a master builder. Yeah. He's a graphic designer by trade, but he has done our house in West Haven and done our house in Colebrook and remodeled this whole place from the ground up. May have taken you three years, you know, but we're here. <laughs> I'm slow. So while he was building, I stayed down in New Haven and worked, continued to work and send and money sent up money. here. And... Um, <laughs> That had, I had time in the evening since he was up here full time. I came up on weekends. I would um, research spices and blends and things like that and tweak in the kitchen and just um, pass things out to friends and colleagues at work and take a lot of notes. And here we are. So aside from the standard spices, which you sell, what are, what are some of the blends you've come up with? What I've decided to do is um, initially do some whimsical blends and stuff, kind of stay away from the classic blends that we all have. And I have some things here. For example, we're surrounded by campers and 
and folks who like the outdoors, I have one called Get Your Game On, and it has a nice blend of juniper berries, black peppercorns, thyme, sage, cocoa powder, smoked paprika, even some maple sugar, um, and applewood smoked salt. That goes really well with grilling. Juniper in a barbecue rub sounds amazing. It is an unusual, an unexpected spice in a barbecue rub. It really works well, yeah. Your store is a gift shop as well as a food market. I know you sell prepared foods, you have soups and chilies and you bake, Alan, there's always scones and baked goods and you sell household stuff. How do you work together doing this as a couple? Honestly, it's we been- We fight all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can, we can. That's, that's a joke. Well, sometimes, but um, actually that's a very good question. Having all the experience, over 35 years professional culinary experience, I naturally gravitate to the kitchen and Rick, Rick is a people person and he's very, does very well with customers and, and establishes that rapport. He's done a marvelous job in the marketplace end of things with gathering local craftspeople and getting their things in here that we do sell on consignment. It's been a remarkable opportunity to see all the talent that's in this area and yeah. bring them together. Yeah. So so that's been really wonderful. And Rick really handles that end of things very well. I'm a talker and um, <laughs> I'm a people person. I'm an artist and I love supporting local artists. So it's been rewarding, you know, selling their stuff year round, not just around the holidays. And I play my music in the front of the store. He plays his music in the back, in the kitchen. Alan, I see what you make on Facebook. You post it all the time. Um, let me ask you, do local ingredients that are available drive your culinary choices? Or do you do your recipes and then source ingredients from wherever you need to? Absolutely, the former. I take ingredients that are available to me and then I create from there. What I found really exciting and fun that I enjoy the most and I get really passionate about, I surround myself with all the spices and herbs that we have here in inventory. And I just use that to layer my flavors and get excited. It's really like being a kid in the candy store here with all the flavors that I'm able to use. Because all, we're working with three farms here and the produce is just coming out everywhere. So I'm able to really take the, the fresh broccoli, the cauliflower, we have two different kinds of kale in here we're selling. I use that in my soups and entrees as well. And I try to take my spice blends and incorporate that and layer those flavors. Something different that people may not know of. For example, in the wintertime, we didn't have a lot of that going on. So I relied primarily on legumes and grains and beans and things like that. And I would take my spice blends and incorporate that in. And I created the soup a lentil soup, but I decided to do that with dates and sumac and the sweetness of the dates and that tart lemoniness of the sumac just made a great marriage and great flavor. And I started making that in January and I'm up to making over 12 to 18 quarts a week now. In the kind of business you're in, prepared foods, people coming in to take out, do you find that COVID was a detriment with doing that kind of food or was people being home actually, it helped your business at the beginning? I think in the beginning, we didn't actually open for business until this past December 21. We opened the food part of the operation in January 22. But I would say, yes, that helped us because a lot of people were still in that takeout mode. 
and we did curbside service in the beginning. So yes, that actually helped us in a way because we were, we're not inside eating, grab and go. I see on your website and on Facebook that this summer you've offered free yoga classes and oh, essential yeah. oil classes. <laughs> was it as fun as you thought or was it not as fun as you thought? I tell Alan, trust me, just trust me, it's gonna work. And it's great, it was bringing people together, um, old and young, and it was fun. Um, and we're going to continue doing it. And um, I love yoga and I love bringing people together and we'll have more classes. All our artisans here will be teaching a class eventually, like our soap guy will teach a class how to make soap. Our jewelry girl will be teaching class how to make jewelry. And we had essential oil class and eventually cooking classes. That's brilliant. Do you see your store acting as a little mini community center? That's really an interesting point. I I really am gratified to see when folks come in together, it's people meeting people. One of the things leading to a gathering place and getting folks together is starting in the fall, we're gonna be beginning a, a training program with folks with disabilities here in the area. So that'll start up in September. So that's one of the goals that we had in our, our plan from the beginning. We'll have them in the yeah. store, in the kitchen. Um, Al is from New Haven. Right. Um, He's been doing it 15 years, uh, training adults with disabilities. So we're bringing that program here. That's one of our goals for the business and it's happening. We're excited. End of summer, there'll be two students here uh, two days a week from nine to 12, working in the kitchen, creating this food and blends. So when we first opened, there was so much curiosity of what was going on because yeah. Rick spent a good three years working outside and people would drive by and not let them in and, and looking and looking <laughs> and when we put that open flag out on december 18th oh, the place just filled up with fun. neighbors and there were so many neighbors here yeah. in this rural town you can go days or weeks without talking to your neighbor because yeah. we're all we're so far scattered and they all came together and they were introducing themselves after being up here 20, 30 years. It was, and cool. it was just really cool to see. Absolutely. And we have two rocking chairs that we're sitting in now that people love to sit and talk. Yep. <laughs> Alan would be like, they're talking too much. I'm like, no. <laughs> and so to answer your question, I suppose we're sort of a mini community center in that respect. Yeah. Um, with these rocking chairs, people feel very comfortable to just come in and sit down and, talk and speak with Rick. Yeah. I've actually set up a system in the kitchen <laughs> and uh, have oh. a look. I purchased a bell at a restaurant supply place last year. He thought I got this for the counter in case a customer needed to get our attention. But no, this is me in the kitchen. 20 minutes he's been with a customer. <laughs> Wrap One it up. <laughs> We've got things to do. <laughs> really? That's it? Time to come in the kitchen and help me. Are there any plans to expand your sales into online? Absolutely. We, th we thought after getting a full year under our belt here to get to know our, our customers and where we're pivoting back and forth from spice blends to making food, takeout foods, now selling produce here, we will settle down and probably, most likely, yes, offer our spice blends, which I'm continually to develop online yes and it'll be primarily our spices and spice plants that are unique to us yeah i think that that's a fabulous thing and I'm, everyone is going to look forward to being able to, to buy those from you online to find out more what alan thayer and rich marches all are doing at spice 320 you could check out their website spice320.com and follow them on facebook spice 320 guys thanks for sharing some time with me this morning 
Thank you, Bruce. It's a lot of work and a lot of hard backbreaking oh, uh, effort. Did everything by hand. Rebuilt that building. I mean, you talk about sweat equity in putting into that wow. business. I oh. know, crazy. And that I think is what it takes. If you don't have major investors, you've got to put the sweat equity into building a business. A lot of people, even Bruce and I, have dreamed of opening a food business of some sort, and then we get daunted by the logistics of how to do it. A fascinating interview with two people who are actually making a living out of doing it. Okay. As always, the last segment of our podcast, what's making us happy in food this week? I'm going to start. All right. Okay, so we are testing recipes for a new cookbook. We are always working on a new cookbook, and we are working on a step-by-step air fryer book in which every single step, wow, it's just nightmare, every single step is photographed. So it's not just the final dish, but every step throughout the air frying process is photographed crazy crazy we're just now developing the recipes for it and this week i ate an air fried hot brown and if you don't know what an air fried hot brown is you haven't lived long enough it is what is it it's ham and bacon and turkey right on an open-faced sandwich traditional hot brown is turkey and sometimes ham piled into an open-faced sandwich topped with tomatoes topped with mornay sauce and cheese and then it's baked until it's gooey and brown and then it's topped with cooked bacon and i made it in the air fryer and mark loved it i i actually had to put it away i (laughs) ate part of it and i actually had to put the dish away for fear that i would eat the whole thing and therefore weigh nine million pounds instead of the eight million nine hundred thousand pounds that i currently weigh so i was just undone by this hot brand so what's making you happy in food this what's making me happy this week also is coming out of this recipe testing for this book and it's homemade char siu or chinese roast pork i used to drive an hour to this asian market in west hartford to get really good char siu if i was doing a stir fry or needed it for a dumpling filling and i came up with a way to slice boneless pork shoulder into like half inch or one inch thick steaks and the right spice blend and the right marinade and i could do it in the air fryer and it comes out actually even better than what I get at that Asian market. Uh, those ladies at the counter will not be happy with well, you. I don't care. And <laughs> we are actually having a Chinese dinner party this weekend, and I've made some because I've chopped it up to use inside some dumplings, and that mm. is making me happy. Yeah, well, that would make anybody happy. Thanks for listening to our podcast this week about food news, about starting a food business, our cooking tips, and what's making us happy in food this week. Again, please rate, subscribe, do those things that you can do to help us. We are thrilled to be doing this podcast and thrilled that you're on the journey with us. See you next time on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.